turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter as we look into the Word of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 19. This book is about a, it's written to those Christians that were scattered about Asia Minor, scattered because of persecution or persecution that was coming around the time of 65 AD and afterwards, which they were running. Many of them had been ostracized or persecuted. They had been punished or some even faced death. Peter responds to them in this letter about what it means to suffer and what a privilege it is to suffer for the sake of Christ. The privilege of suffering for our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes to these Christians in verse 12. He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word, which is eternal, your word, which will never fade, your word, which is dependable, your word, which gives life. And we pray, God, that it might encourage our souls, that it might give us encouragement, especially in difficult times. So, Father, grant to us an illumined mind by your spirit. Fill us with understanding and may your grace be upon us. Draw us, Father, to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the greatest privileges in the world is that I feel. One of the greatest privileges in the world is to share share the gospel. To share the gospel with someone, to see them respond, to be used by God to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus, to pray with them that they might come and have eternal life, knowing that they've received eternal life, knowing that the angels in heaven celebrate because of what they have done, knowing that they are now a child of God, no longer in bondage to sin, and a servant of God. That's exciting. That is a privilege. That is a privilege and it is a worthwhile privilege. That was the purpose of a man whose name was Redoy Roy, who followed God's call. 
His purpose was to share the gospel with as many people as he possibly could and to lead them to Christ. So he packed his bags. He worked at an outreach ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ in Bangladesh. On April 23rd in 2003, just about five years ago, he showed the Jesus film to about 200, 200 villagers. And what he loved to do was he loved to watch the audience. Because many of them hadn't heard of this Jesus before. He would watch their, their expressions of fascination and of hope in the Jesus film. And he watched their faces. And he loved even more than that when many would come and decide to choose to follow Jesus afterwards. Their newfound friend and their newfound Savior. And that would bring joy to their heart. It's a feeling that he would have that evening when he would go home. He was dropped off by rickshaw. And the account of his life reads like this. He turned the handle and, quote, pushed the door open to his rented home and made his way through the dark house. Before he could reach the light switch, he was hit in the face. Being knocked to the ground, angry radical Muslims grabbed him and dragged him over to his bed. A couple more held him down as they tied his hands and feet to the bedposts. Ridoy screamed in pain as the men hit him repeatedly. The knives followed. Ridoy uttered a final prayer and then departed this earth to spend eternity with the Savior. Neighbors who heard the screams called the police who quickly made their way to the scene and they were eager to make an arrest and so what they did was they went and arrested two of the Christians from the gathering which he had had as well as the rickshaw driver. Of course, none of them had anything to do with the murder but in the eyes of the police it showed progress in the investigation. To the people in that church, though, it was no surprise because several times he had been threatened and told to stop showing the Jesus film, but he refused. He refused to stop. He was willing to pay the price to use this one tool to reach people and to tell them who Christ was. And God had used this persecution to strengthen the faith of that Christian church and the account was that the ministry grew immensely and many Muslims heard about the case and were curious to see the film that this person had been murdered for and had given his life just to show and to lead people to Christ and they wanted to know more about Jesus and how to follow him. The price, you see, to, to see the film was free. The price to show the film cost him his life. But in the end, that cost was well worth what was paid because the reward was leading people to Jesus and doing what was right and doing what God had called him to. See, he felt that the privilege of suffering for Jesus is a privilege and an honor. And that is what Peter prepares the hearts of these people here to do. He encourages them in their suffering. And I've always thought to myself and reminded of that couple that sat in a class with me at Dallas Seminary. And they told me that their purpose they knew was to go to Syria or Lebanon, someplace in the Middle East. And they were preparing themselves because they never expected as a couple to come out of there alive. They 
had a sense that they would die there serving the Lord and I don't know what happened to them I haven't kept track with them but it fascinated me because there they were preparing for themselves years of ministry that would be perhaps cut short but they wanted to go because those people need to know Jesus and Peter writes here to these people and he writes them and writes to them and he tells them what? He tells them three things that they need to remember if they're going to anticipate and be able to handle suffering. And the first thing he says in verse 12 is to expect suffering. To expect suffering. He says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Maybe these believers were taken off guard. Maybe they were surprised. Maybe they didn't expect that they would be objects of vitriolic anger by those around them. Maybe they didn't expect to be ostracized. Maybe they didn't expect for their families to be broken up because of their faith. The word fiery ordeal is used of a a furnace melting some precious metal in order to purge it from its impurities. The whole idea of suffering for Jesus was something that Jesus often talked about. He said in John 15:18, "If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you." In 1 John 3:13, he writes, "Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you." Do you ever think about that when you received Christ? Do you ever think about that when you share the gospel with someone else saying, well, you know, if you receive Christ, you know what? There are people who might hate you for it. If you're a Christian, the idea is you prepare yourself and you think to yourself, you know what? If I become a Christian, not everyone's going to accept me. In fact, I'm going to face rejection. People may even resent the fact and hate the fact that I am a follower of Jesus. As Christians, Paul describes two main effects that a Christian has in 2 Corinthians. If you look there in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says two effects that the Christian has upon the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. He writes there, But thanks be to God, 2.14, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma of death to death. To the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? You see, in the ancient times, the Roman soldiers, during the time that they would have a particular victory over an enemy, they would, make a, they would have a procession into the city. Under certain circumstances, if they defeated this enemy, they would have a procession which would be called a Roman triumph. And they would proceed into the city in a triumphal entry. And people would throw flowers onto the ground. The musicians would play. The priests would go forward. And they would have their censers filled with incense. And the incense would burn. And there would be smells in the area. And there would be celebratory music and sounds and sights. If you were a soldier in that army, you would walk proud in that procession because it was an aroma of victory. You had won. A pleasant welcome fragrance. But there were others in the parade as well. 
down perhaps near the end, people who were captured, prisoners of war who had been stripped or beaten, they would come and they would come into this city and people would jeer at them and they would tell the sights and sounds, but it wouldn't be for victory to them. It was the sight and sound of death. To them, it was the sight and sound that they had been defeated. In the same way, the Christian has an effect upon the world. The aroma which is through us, through the knowledge of Christ, affects people. And some people will rejoice knowing that, hey, I'm working with another Christian. Oh, there's another Christian in my class. Isn't that great? Or so-and-so goes to such-and-such church and you're happy because you've met another Christian at work. And they're happy that they found... But those who don't know you, they make assumptions sometimes and they, they don't know what being a Christian is. And to them, they may resent the fact, oh, you're perhaps this way or that way. And they may even mock you or talk about you behind your back. So don't expect that everyone is going to like you. Don't expect that everyone is going to have favor upon you. And don't try to make everyone happy or focus on trying to please everyone or is constantly concerned about how others view them, etc. And that isn't living a way that is pleasing to God. Your goal is to please God. And when we please God, we live a godly life. Do you remember what Paul reminds Timothy? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. They're going to have problems. You're going to have problems. It's not all who desire to make everyone like them. Not all who desire to not cause any waves. No. It is those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. And it says here that the trials come in this verse. It says, for your testing. For your testing. Now, God doesn't need to test us for his sake. He already knows where you're at. He already knows if you know Him. He already knows the genuineness or the disingenuineness of your faith. So testing comes that we might know. That we might know where we're at. Whether our faith is genuine or not. Or whether or not our faith is strong. And in testing comes, as I mentioned, it's a word that is a refining word that's used of precious metals which are placed into a fire in order to bring out the impurities. That we might see our faults and correct them. The testing comes that we might see perhaps even whether or not we're genuinely in the faith. That we genuinely know God or is this something that is just, oh, this is easy, convenient, in some social setting or whatever it might be. That is why testing comes. And he says, don't be surprised. So first thing he says is expect, expect. And if you're not having a difficult time today, well, we praise God for that too. But expect that someday you very well may be. Secondly, he says to rejoice when suffering for Christ. To rejoice when suffering to Christ. Suffering for Christ. Verse 13. The degree to which you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. The attitude that we're to have is what? Of joy. When we suffer for Christ, because we've been faithful in our witness, faithful in our testimony, faithful in having a non-compromising life, faithful in not being like the rest of the world, faithful in taking a stand when maybe your friends all decide they want to do something else, faithful in what? Not doing the things that the world does. 
altogether with them. As we've seen in the previous chapters, they're surprised that you don't run with them in excesses and dissipation. And when we do, we face opposition. The Lord reminds us in Luke 6, it says this, Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn you, your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Why do we have a great reward? Because of our testimony of Christ. Why do we have a great reward in heaven? Because we have the privilege of suffering for Christ. Do you remember in the book of Acts, chapter 3? Peter and John, they're going up to the temple and, and there is this man. There is this man, he is sitting by the steps and he's crippled. He's been crippled, he's, a, he's not a young man, he's an older man. And he's begging, he's asking them for alms. And Peter and John look at him and the children sing a song, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, that in the name of Jesus stand up and walk. And the man stood up and walking and leaping and praising God. That's what the text says. And he's praising God and the Sadducees come with the temple guard and they say Peter and John are causing a disruption. They're going to arrest him. So they arrest him. And they tell Peter and John, now you stop talking about Jesus. You stop talking about Jesus because you're taking, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're causing trouble. And they're sitting in front of the Sanhedrin. They're standing in front of the Sanhedrin, you know. The Sanhedrin is the ruling Jewish body. They're the ruling Jewish body and they're commanding them and threatening them and they let them go. What do Peter and John do? They continue to proclaim the name of Jesus and they continue to preach the gospel and 5,000 people are saved and so they drag them into the Sanhedrin once again. And in Acts chapter 5, they decide, you know what, threats and just telling them, commanding them won't do anything. So what they do is they flog them. They flog them. They beat them. They strip their back and they take leather thongs, sometimes barbed with, with bones on the very end, and they flog them generally 39 times and the, 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 the whip rips into their back until they're bloody. And they do that in order to dissuade them. They do it 39 times as they wouldn't break the law, the Jewish law of 40 lashes. And after being severely beaten in Acts chapter 12, which would dissuade most people. In Acts 5.41, Peter and John say this. It says this in the text. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Let me ask you this. If you were to lose your job because you said that I'm a Christian, or if you were beaten... Because you said you were a Christian and you're beat up for that and people at work ignored you or scorned you or spit on you or did all sorts of things to you, would you consider it a privilege? What a privilege I have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Would you consider that? They weren't deterred. The next verse in verse 42 of chapter 5 of Acts tells us every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It didn't dissuade them. They considered it a privilege. They rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. It's not any suffering that 
Peter is talking about in this text is suffering for Jesus. It's not any suffering where you might run a red light and get a ticket or, oh man, I, I was caught to do littering or whatever it might be. That's not suffering. It's suffering for the name of Christ. And he specifies this. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or even says there a troublesome meddler. That means somebody who is a troublemaker, basically. You cause trouble and you get punished for it. Maybe your parents will punish you for it. Don't say to yourself, well, I'm suffering. What a wonderful thing. You know, praise God. My treasure is great in heaven. One who meddles in things. That's what it means. Alien to his calling. Don't be a troublemaker. Don't cause conflicts. God is not saying here you have to be belligerent or pugilistic. Some people, they come across and, you know, I think of myself, I think of when I was at the University of Washington, there was one guy who would always wear this huge sandwich board, you know, and he'd go and yell things at people. And of course, he's going to get called names and things like that. He's not very good, didn't come across very loving. Don't be troublesome. And it says here, if one suffers, what? As a Christian. Suffers for the name of Christ. Verse 16, anyone suffers as a Christian. He's not to be ashamed. Do you realize the name Christian was only used three times in the New Testament? One time here. One time in Acts chapter 11 verse 26 where those believers in Antioch were first called Christians. And one time when Paul was speaking with Agrippa and Agrippa replied to Paul, Quote, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? According to Simon Kistemacher, a commentator, he notes this, that the name or title of Christian didn't originate with Christians themselves. Christians called themselves disciples. They called themselves believers. They called themselves those who belonged to the way, like in Acts 9-2. Do you know who called people Christians? Those who were Gentiles, those who were not Christians. Those who were not Christians called those who followed Christ's little Christ or Christians. In fact, the term had a sort of a derogatory term, kind of like, well, you wouldn't want to be a Christian. Tacitus wrote, who was a Roman historiographer in AD 64, quote, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men who the crowd styled Christians, unquote. It wasn't a term that was particularly popular. Now today, it may be popular to call oneself Christian, especially if there's a cultural acceptance of it. In fact, it may be popular if one is a politician to align oneself as a Christian rather than a other religions. One might say, well, in our states, well, you call yourself a Christian, that's much more acceptable. But when you go to the Middle East, of course, calling yourself Christian invites a difficult life. In the early church, it was the same. It wasn't easy to be known as a Christian. It was descriptive of those who followed Christ. In fact, it was said that those who were martyred, those who were killed for the sake of Jesus, on their lips, they would declare... I am a Christian. And that's to be our confession as well. And it says, don't be ashamed. You've got nothing to be ashamed about being a Christian. I know some people have been Christians for years, and yet no one at their workplace even knows that they are a Christian. Regardless of how your classmates might treat you or your coworkers might respond, let them know that you're a Christian. 
You've got nothing to be ashamed of. Because if you are persecuted and have a difficult time, you're blessed, it says. You're blessed. And we desire to honor God. And when we do, God will honor you. And the trials and the testing and the suffering and the purification of the church, it begins with God's church. And that's what he says in 17 and 18. That the purification, the judgment comes with the church of God first. That God uses these trials to, to, to purify the church so that we might know who is a Christian and who is not. So for ourselves, that we might be true to God. And if it's that difficult, what about in the end times when those who are godless and the sinner, how difficult it will be for them? Peter reminds those who are his readers, God brings suffering to test them, to test them for their own sake, so that they can strengthen their faith and so that they can know their own salvation. And when they do, they can praise God. So take joy, it says. Take joy, rejoice. Because you can see, you see, not only the genuineness of your faith, when you've gone through difficult times and God, by His grace, has helped you to weather the storm, you can take joy and say, you know what? There is the confirmation of my faith. There is the fruit of my faith. And God has blessed me with the grace to endure and to remain faithful to the end. And what a joy it is, as Paul writes, and this is your heart as well, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Do you realize we just sang that? That we might share in His sufferings. And if we're beaten for it, what a privilege it is that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And when we do... We entrust ourselves, thirdly. We entrust ourselves to God when suffering. Those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator and do what is right. That word entrust is a banker's word. It's a banker's word. And maybe it says commit in your version. The NIV says commit. You commit your life to God who is trustworthy. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was on the cross. Remember when he said, I commit into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Same word. You commit your life to God, who is the creator and the sustainer of life, because he will take care of you. He's a sustainer of your life. You entrust your soul to him. When difficult times come, it's not a time to run. It's a time to stand strong and you say, God, my life is yours. The reason why, you see, you woke up this morning and I woke up this morning is because of the grace of God. It's because of the grace of God. Not only did God create you, but He sustained you and He will care for your soul in life's end. The perspective that life is short is how we're to live. For those who suffer for the name of Christ, you see, their, their perspective is wholly different. When you talk to somebody who has faith, true suffering, suffering for Jesus... Every day that they live means so much more to them. Because they realize, you know what, the day prior, I could have died for Christ. The day prior, I was running for my life. Maybe today I'll run again. And yet, by God's grace, He holds the future of my soul. And no threat, no force, no torture can dissuade them from doing what's right. And this is the encouragement 
of our life. This is the encouragement of our life to live a life of no compromise. Because there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. People think to themselves, boy, boy, eternal life is free. It is. But in a sense, it costs you everything after you become a Christian. Eternal life is free. You don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. God gives you eternal life and you're a Christian. Your identity has changed. But God may call you to live a life that is difficult afterwards. It's not always going to be a bowl of cherries. The cost of following Jesus might require your life. And so Peter here tells us, resolve in your heart to resolve to do what is right, no matter what the cost is, and follow Christ. Just as the children sing, we teach them this song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. Do you realize what the cross was? It was an image of death. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Be resolved. Be resolved to follow Jesus and to be willing to suffer for the sake of His name. To let others know that I am a Christian. Not ashamed. We continue to do what is right. That's the life of a pastor, Izad Habib, who was the pastor of a church in Egypt. His family was frequently threatened and abused by his neighbors, even from Egypt's national police. But in June, about five years ago from today, he was arrested for, quote-unquote, disturbing the neighborhood. And when they arrested him, they placed him in a cell. They placed him in a cell that was so narrow he couldn't even sit down. Then he was physically and sexually abused by the police. He never rejected, though, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took him out of that little prison. After five days of standing, an officer blindfolded him and he tied his hands in chains and they interrogated him with police officers on both sides they would kick him and hit him and they would insult his wife he was warned to stop his Christian meetings and to forbid non-Christians from attending because they knew that he had been sharing the gospel with Muslims and he had been encouraging them to leave Islam encouraging them to leave Islam and to follow the Lord Jesus but in spite of the threats his congregation continued meeting and he was sent back home One day, his home was hit by two trees that a man outside who claimed that the police had told him to cut down these trees. They smashed through the windows of his apartment building. His front door was blocked off on the outside. His phone line was cut. Then on October 24th, just three years ago, Habib, his son, and a friend of theirs were walking across the street in Cairo, Egypt. And there was a taxi that careened down the street and struck all three of them. He was rushed to the hospital. He had internal bleeding and a broken skull. Surgery for him was unsuccessful. He died the next day. His friend and his son survived the injuries. The hospital had a report and even though his son couldn't read all that was there, his son signed the report only later to learn that it was fabricated. The taxi driver went unpunished. 
The church knew, though, that it was not an ordinary accident. They continued to meet despite the threats. And their resolve was that they had seen how he was able to stand firm in his faith until he died because of Jesus. And they were determined to do the same. There was a third century scholar named Tertullian who said, quote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is the phrase that lives today too. For in every place that there has been persecution in the world, the church is purified and it has grown for the most part. Because Jesus has promised the gates of Hades will never conquer the church. I think often when I watch the news at night that we have over 100,000 troops in Iraq. Well over that and tens of thousands more. And even in Afghanistan and other parts of the world. And these soldiers are courageous, willing to give of their time, willing to give their family life and even to die for the sake of their country. I think to myself, shouldn't we as Christians do the same for the sake of our King? Shouldn't we, too, be willing to say, Sure, I'm willing to go on a tour of duty. And I'm willing to give of my life that I might fight for the name of Jesus, what God has called me to. And when I face suffering, I can rejoice. Because I can share in His suffering and know what it was like for Jesus to suffer, that I might share in that and know the power of God in my life as he sustains me. May God grant us grace to do so. Father in heaven, we look to you, knowing, Father, that you have ordained for us a path to take. And I pray, God, that we might be faithful to that. Father, I pray that we might not be ashamed of your name. That those around us, Father, whether at work or at school, whether the store or in our neighborhood might know that we are Christians. And Father, if we should suffer for it, doing what is right, may you cause us to have joy and may we count it a privilege for your name's sake. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.